0: This morning's scripture reading comes from select passages from John chapter 6, as printed in your bulletin. Chapter 6, verse 2. And a great crowd of people followed him, because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted." So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 47, I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is God's Word.
1: A few weeks ago, we started a, a new series, and we called it uh, Dining with the King. And it's because through, throughout the Bible, uh, many narratives uh, take place in the context of a meal. Meals, ancient meals, they, they represent just this intimate relational culture that existed in that time and in those days and in that place. And through each of these meals what I'm submitting to you really is that we're going to learn something special about the character and the work of Jesus Christ through these meals. Now, this is a famous passage, probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, a great miracle. The first part of this, verses 1 to 13, is about the miracle itself. Jesus never leaves a miracle to stand alone. If you read the Bible, especially in the book of John, he never leaves the miracles to stand alone. There is always a teaching that either precedes or follows the miracle to explain the miracle. And so verses 1 to 13 is the miracle. Verses 25, through the end of this chapter, we see the teaching about the miracle. And what's the lesson? You see this in tidbits here. Verses 35 and 41 and 48 and 51, Jesus says, I and the bread of life. Three things we're going to learn today: the miracle, the teaching, the application. The miracle, the teaching, the application of the miracle, okay? First, we're going to look at the miracle. Just to kind of set the context. The disciples, they were sent out by Jesus Christ to perform all these miracles, to do his work, to spread the gospel. And they had just returned here in chapter 6 when we see already a crowd had been following Jesus As he was performing miracles, healing the sick, it says, and he led them up a mountainside and there he's teaching his disciples and they get hungry. And we see that there are 5,000 of them. Now it's probably way more than 5,000 because back in the day when they made any type of count, they would only count the men. So most likely there were more than 5,000, way more because there were probably other wives, women, children also involved here. Probably way more than 5,000 people. And uh, Jesus, what he does is he says, hey, these people are hungry. He asks uh, his disciple, Philip, where are we going to buy bread for these people to eat? And Philip responds and he says, well, eight months wages are not going to buy enough bread for each person to even have a bite. And then another disciple, Andrew, he brings to Jesus then this boy. He presents this boy, the only kid who prepared. He's got five small barley loaves, which incidentally were food for horses back then very poor child. He packed a lunch. He's got five small loaves and two fish. And Andrew says, well, how far is this really going to go, right? I mean, this is a small boy's lunch. Jesus has the people sit down. He gives thanks for the food. And then with that bread, with that little, he feeds everybody with the bread and the fish until everybody is full, it says. And when he's finished, it says they had 12 baskets left over. Perhaps the most public miracle ever recorded in the Gospel of John, certainly. uh, Probably in all the Gospels. And incidentally, it's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospel accounts. Why? If you think about this, 12 disciples, 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel... Uh, What does the number 12 mean? This lesson is intended for everybody. It's in a very public place because it's intended for everybody to see. Uh, The 12 baskets, the 12 tribes, the 12 disciples, it represents all of God's people, God's church. What's the lesson here? He wants us to experience and learn about the power of God. Jesus Christ uses an insignificant child to do an impossible work He uses seemingly insufficient means to sufficiently feed his people. In other words, Jesus chooses not, he he chooses to work through not the strong, but the weak. Not the able. I mean, the disciples, they were able, but he doesn't choose the able. He chooses the unable. Not in spite of their weakness and their poverty and insignificance, but through their weakness, through these loaves, through this small child, through the poverty through the insignificance. Jesus is sufficient where we are insufficient. Jesus is the way when we're lost. It says that he takes them on a mountainside and really the the actual word connotes a sense of wilderness experience. These people are traveling through the wilderness up a mountain. But you overlook actually a very small part of this passage here. In verse 10 it says, he has the people sit down and in this wilderness experience, in this mountainside, on this mountainside, it says there's plenty of grass in that patch. Reminds me of Psalm chapter 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. We're talking about a reversal of the wilderness, a reversal of the curse. Even in the wilderness, in the presence of Jesus, there's safety and there's a filling. You can be filled, it says. Even when it seems like there's nothing, nothing able you can be filled. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, the last time this happened, the last time we saw anything remotely similar to this type of experience was in the Old Testament. All the way in the Old Testament, all the way in Exodus chapter 16, the people of God also are wandering through the wilderness. God rescues the Israelites out of slavery and for 40 years, they're wandering in the desert, they're wandering in the wilderness and God provides for them bread. He gives them bread. Now, what's a wilderness? What is a desert? The desert is a, is a dead place. It's a barren place. It's a place where there's no life. In fact, it's a place where life cannot be sustained. Nothing can be sustained in the wilderness. The people are, If you're in the wilderness for a long time, you feel like you're dying. Your throat is parched. You're thirsty and you're empty and you're hungry. In Exodus chapter 15, 16, God provides bread. And he says, here's what I want you to do with the bread. Every morning, the bread's going to come. And what I want you to do is I want you to gather just enough for your family, just enough that you need for the day. If you saved more than you needed, these people would put it in jars and they they would save it for the next day. It would inevitably rot and spoil and there would be maggots. And they called the bread manna. Later he tells Moses, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to save some of this manna for the generations so that people can see the bread that I gave you to eat when you were in the desert so they can see my power. And since those days, since that day, and since those days, those ancient times, the prophets began to speak of a savior who would come. You see this in like the intertestamental books. There were books that spanned in between the Old and New Testament. And in these intertestamental books, you see prophecies of somebody who would come. God would send someone who would bring them bread from heaven. And centuries later, in the wilderness, up the mountain in this barren place, Jesus feeds his people with bread. And he says, I am the bread from heaven. Notice a few things. Notice this. He never demonstrates his power to fill himself. I mean, I'm sure Jesus was hungry. But it's not like he's hungry and he's like, all right, I'll I'll feed these people around me too. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus had been fasting in the wilderness in the wilderness for 40 days, starving. And Satan, the devil, comes to him and says, why don't you just turn these stones to bread? You have immense power. Why don't you use that power to fill yourself? And what does Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He never demonstrates power to fill himself. Secondly, you don't see him rolling up his sleeves, telling people, okay, guys, I want you to stand back, watch this. You never see him doing that. You never see him doing some sort of dance like the witch doctors in his day, the shamans in his day? How does Jesus Christ demonstrate his strength? He does it by working through the week. He involves other people. He looks at his disciples and says, I want you to feed the people. They say, we can't. He uses this boy, this insignificant boy with an insignificant lunch to feed the people. In other words, Jesus, he doesn't want you to know about his power. He wants you to know his power. He doesn't want you to just learn about his power. He wants you to experience his power. The disciples, they had power. But when they were relying on their own power, their own strength, their own resources, they ultimately felt weak. This boy, he had nothing, close to nothing. He was the one that Jesus used. The disciples, they're looking elsewhere for options. They're looking elsewhere. Where are we going to get this bread? How are we going to get this money to buy this bread? How much money can we possibly have to be able to feed these people? They're looking elsewhere for options. They're looking elsewhere for potential. They're looking elsewhere for bread. And as a result, they had less options, less potential, and less bread. What does that mean? Right now, if you feel, you know, people go through ebbs and flows spiritually. There are days when you feel like you are just in a tropical forest and you're drenched and you sense the power of God's presence in your life, you really sense his presence working in you, then there are days when you feel like you're in a barren land. You're in a spiritually dry place. You're in a desert. And you're thirsty, and you don't even realize you're thirsty. You're hungry. You don't even realize you're hungry because you've busied yourself. You've preoccupied yourself in other things. In fact, that's the reason why we're so thirsty and why we're hungry. If you're in that type of place, spiritually powerless, right now it says the Spirit Spiritually, you can take heart because Jesus could be preparing you right now for a filling. You can be filled. How do you begin to know that God is working in your life? How do you begin to taste this bread that Jesus offers? How do you begin to see his abundance in his grace and his power? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You can be satisfied in me. In the Old Testament, he says, You know, in the Old Testament, there were never leftovers, right? Because it would spoil, it would rot. There would be maggots. Here he says, I'm the bread of life. I will give you life to the full. This is an invitation. Friends, this is an invitation if you're hungry. In this passage, there are 12 baskets left over. He's saying, if you take of me, it's not like I'm just going to give you just enough to get by. You can have it in abundance to the full, to the point where you're overflowing. That's what he's saying here. I'm going to read you a passage in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17, beautiful text. Just look at the adjectives. Listen to the adjectives. This is the Apostle Paul. He's in jail, he's in prison, and he's praying for his people, he's praying for the church. And he combines a series of adjectives to describe the abundance of the glory and the power and the, and, the, and the beauty of Christ in that. Let me read this to you. Verse 17, Ephesians chapter 1. I keep asking that, God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may, the, that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Beautiful text. If you're holding on to things, if you're holding on to things, you're saying, Jesus, I'm not really going to come to you because I don't want to give up certain things in my life. There's certain things I just can't give up. There's certain pursuits I can't give up. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, we have several entrepreneurs here, quite a few actually, people with an entrepreneurial spirit. Entrepreneurs, um, they're addicted to, uh, there's a thrill in entrepreneurship. There's a a lot of thrill seekers uh, tend to be entrepreneurs. If you've noticed, if you see the great CEOs who started out with small businesses, they're thrill seekers, they're joy seekers, they're, they're people who are risk takers. You have to be to be an entrepreneur, you have to be to have an entrepreneurial spirit. If you're holding on to things and you're saying, Jesus, I can't, I'm not going to come to you, I can't come and give all myself to you. You know why? Because you're going to give something up. There are things that I, I just want to give up, certain things, certain pursuits. That's going to be like manna. That's what this text is saying. That's like manna. Because you're going to experience the spoiling. You're holding things back. You're holding things back. You're rationing things back for yourself. It's going to rot. It's going to spoil. There are going to be maggots. There's going to be rotting and death. Do you get that? And it's going to starve your soul. But if you surrender to things that you've been storing up, you're saying, these things are going to rot anyway. You give me everything I need for the day. These things are going to rot anyway. So I'm going to submit my intelligence. I'm going to submit my wealth my educational background, my pedigree and family background, my looks, my children that I've invested and devoted my life to, these things do not make me, they do not make my identity. I need more of Christ. He is my record. He is my source of worth. What he says to validate me, what he gives me, that is enough. I need more of Jesus Christ in my life. Then, God's power Will save you. Then, you will experience the filling of Christ. Will you trust in the power of Christ? To do that, you know what you got to do. You got to put. You got to put down your ego. You got to put your ego to rest. There's a story. Uh, I had to verify it. Uh, 1990, the Chicago Bulls are playing the Cleveland Cavaliers. They're in the finals right now, but back then they were just a stepping stone uh, in the playoffs. The Chicago Bulls are playing the Cleveland Cavaliers in the in the playoffs in 1990, and this is the day Michael Jordan scored 69 points. 69 points against the Cavs. Stacey King, Stacey King that day scored one point. He scored one point. Michael Jordan at 69. Stacey King at one point. When, they, when the reporters came to the locker room, they were interviewing both Michael Jordan and Stacey King because there's such an odd statistical detail here. They asked him, Don't, doesn't it make you feel, do you feel at all jealous of Michael Jordan? This guy gets all the super, I mean, such superstar status. He gets all the accolades. He scores 69 points. You scored one and you're taller than him. How do you feel about that? Stacey King said, are you kidding? Today, Michael Jordan and I scored 70 points together. <laughs> That's what he said. Be a part of God's active power in your life through your weakness. Through your weakness. Plunge yourself into the abundant grace of God and you're going to experience the deep satisfaction that your soul needs, that your soul wants, that you've been pursuing all your life. Even if you have just a little bit, you're going to be able to give thanks. That's the meaning of the miracle. That's the miracle. Now, second point, we're going to learn about the teaching of the miracle What is Jesus teaching here? Verse 35, well, verse 27, he says, don't work for food that spoils, but that which endures to eternal life. And then in verse 35, he says, I am that food, I am that bread of life. What does that mean? In Greek, you have several words for the word life, and they all mean very, very different things. One is, uh, he says, uh, he uses the word, or Jesus or God throughout the Old Testament and New, uses the word for physical life, which is the word bios, where we get the word biology. There's another one called suke, with a P, suke, which we, where we get the word psychology or psyche. It's more about like your sense of worth, in a sense, your identity. And then the third, and that's the word that's used here, it connotes a spiritual quality of life the word zoe, spiritual quality, the meaning of life. And, and, you know, the word bios is most often used in reference to creation. When God as creator, he gives us life, uh, that's the word bios. And what Jesus is saying here is that just as your body needs bread for bios life, your soul needs Jesus for zoe life for the spiritual meaning, the quality of life, what you've been designed for. If you're sitting there saying, what am I here on earth for? You're looking for Zoe. If you're pursuing it in other areas, he's saying you're pursuing other things for bread that will spoil. Jesus says, I am the bread that's going to endure. I am your meaning. You need more of me. Take of me. And you you will experience a spiritual quality of life. You're never going to go hungry, he says, he says, God has placed the seal of his approval on me, on Jesus, and I give it to you. That's what he says in verse 27. How does that shape you? How does that shape us? I'm going to give you three very simple, very quick implications as to sum up Jesus' teaching on being the bread of life and what that means for us. One, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. That means you've got to take me in. You've got, you got to eat. You've got to digest this bread. Not just the words. He says, he doesn't say my words are the bread of life. He says I am the bread of life. The entire person of Christ, who he is, how do you do that? I'm going to give you an illustration. You take two people, put them in a room, separate rooms. They do the same exact job. Their job is as the assembly line works, moves, and as a, a car comes down, you know, or a cabinet or something, you know, um, what they do is their job is just to open the door and close it, open the door and close it, open the door and close it, five times to make sure that it doesn't break off, and then they move it on. They press the button and it moves on. And they got to do that every day for eight hours a day with a half-hour lunch break. Every day they got to do that. This car comes in, open the door, close it, five times. Both people, separate rooms are doing it. The first guy gets paid $10,000 to do it per year. The second guy gets paid $10 million. Same job. So you can't blame it on the job. First guy, how does he feel about this? Oh, his life is miserable. His elbow hurts. You know, his job stinks. He's asking himself every day, what am I doing here? I mean, what is this about? What am I, what am I, I don't deserve this. That's what he's thinking, right? He's questioning Zoe. The quality of his life. The second guy, on the other hand, he comes in, he's like, he comes in early. He's like, this is great. This is all I have to do. He's, just, he's opening his door, closing it. He's passing it on. He's opening and closing He says, I don't deserve this. They're both saying, I don't deserve this. But they, it means such a, something so different, right? He, Jesus is saying, as much suffering as there will be in your life, there could be joy beyond your circumstances. If you look at the end, because he says, I will raise them up. He's talking about the end. I will raise them up into eternal life. If you look at the end point of your life, he says, your present circumstances don't have to define who you are because you are so rich. Taste of the richness of me, he says. A person who's taken in Christ has taken in the whole truth And there are some parts that are difficult to swallow, no pun intended, some parts that are difficult to swallow about Christ because to take him in is to take in who you are, the real you, the sinful, broken, weak, flawed, hurting part of who you are. It forces you to look at that, confess that, admit that, and realize I am absolutely helpless to cure myself, to help myself. I've been trying and it just makes me hungrier. To take taking the whole truth of Christ is to start out there and then to say, Jesus is the bread. It's because I place my worth in all these things. And these things are rotting. And so I'm rotting. My psyche is rotting. My soul is rotting. I'm corroding. I'm disintegrating. Jesus says, don't work for food that spoils. Eat your fill. So when you come to Jesus and you say, well, you know, if I work hard, if I live a good life, I deserve better, Right? I mean, I deserve at least your approval, right? So if you succeed, if you succeed, you're succeed, you going to be proud and you're going to be arrogant. And if you fail, you're going to be angry and you're going to be jealous and you're going to be bitter. But both sides, you're just going to be looking around and you're just going to be comparing yourself with other people because deep into your soul, you believe God owes me because I lived a good life. I've given a lot for him. I've given up all these things for him. God owes me. That's what you're saying. Jesus says, I give you the validation. I give you the approval that you need. Don't work for food that spoils. When the gospel gets taken in, you realize you've been seeking other things to increase your option and your, and your potential and your satisfaction and your joy. And in essence, what they've done is they've decreased your option and your potential and your satisfaction and your joy. Jesus is saying if you go to anything else for a sense of worth, anything else for power, you're going to have less power. It's going to decrease your power, decrease your sense of worth. Take a high-performing engine. Take a beautiful car, a German car, German engineering, high-performing engine. And you feed it with very low-octane fuel. What happens after a while? The engine starts to rot. Inevitably, it takes a while, so you don't notice that at first. In the beginning, it may actually perform okay. But after a while, the engine starts to rot from the inside out. And as it, even though it looks good on the outside, even though it's performing well on the outside, in the beginning, on the inside, it's corroding. And once that thing breaks down, who cares? how good it looks on the outside. The inside has fallen apart. You get dissonance and incoherence. The engine starts to break down and it starts to disintegrate. Jesus says, take me in. I am the bread of life. If you take me in, it stops the dissonance. It stops the incoherence. And you get consonance. Things start to come together in your life. You get coherence. Things start to make sense in your life. Instead of disintegration, there's integration in your life. Everything starts to work together in your life. The heart, the mind, the body, the will, the soul. The second implication of this is it makes you bold and humble at the same time. When you take Jesus in as your bread of life, then it makes you bold and humble, bold and humble at the the same time. Think about this. If you're working for approval, that's why we work so hard. We're working for a good reputation or maybe you don't care about your reputation so you're working, in a sense, for a bad reputation. Kind of like Rocky. Here's, remember the movie Rocky? I mean, if you're from Philadelphia, you definitely remember the movie Rocky. Rocky thinks of himself, this is the original Rocky, the Oscar-nominated Rocky, right? Rocky thinks he's a nobody. He's just been beaten up all his life. And he says, you know, I'm a nobody. And Adrian, his love interest, Adrian says, don't say that about yourself. And Rocky says what? Printed in your bulletin, I believe, right? He says, I just want to go the distance. Why? Because when that bell rings, and if I'm still standing, because no one ever's gone the distance, when that bell rings, and if I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. If you're working for food, if you're working for bread, and you succeed, it's going to make you proud, it's going to make you confident. But it's not going to make you humble. If you fail, it's going to make you humble. It's going to fill you with self hate. You're going to beat yourself up, but you're not going to be confident. Only the gospel, only the gospel, if you take in Jesus Christ as your bread of life, if you're adopted in Christ, then you have a new father, you're part of a new royalty. Jesus says, the Father has given me the seal of approval and I give it to you. That's what he says in this passage. That's ultimate status. You're looking for a reputation? There's your reputation. You're looking for approval and acceptance? There's your approval and acceptance. If you're looking for wealth and richness, one that's never gonna die, and so you're working and you're working and you're working and you realize there's somebody that you gotta beat out, and so you're working and you're working and you're working, and you step all over people to get ahead, but the thing is, you're, you're gonna beat yourself up, you're gonna run down, either physically or certainly soulfully but if you take in Jesus Christ as your bread of life, what happens is he says, there's your inheritance. The seal of approval of the Father. Everything that he deserved, you receive. It's the end of comparisons. It's the end of jealousy. It's the end of snobbishness. That's Zoe reality. Joy. You're left with joy. That's power. That's dynamic. That's incredibly attractive for a person. There's nothing more attractive than a person who is bold and humble at the same time. Why are you bold and humble at the same time? One, you're bold because, well, you're humble because you didn't do anything to gain it. It's given to you. You're bold because you realize it's going to last forever. You're never going to lose it. There's nothing you did to gain it. That makes you humble. There's nothing you can do to lose it. That's going to make you very confident. It's a different kind of confidence. Let that be your fuel. Let that be the key when you labor. Let that be the key when you're in your homes and what you're raising your children with. Let that be the key. If you're looking to find yourself, self-discovery, that's what America is all about. The key to self-discovery, let that be the key. And there you will find true options True potential, true satisfaction, true worth. Jesus Christ is telling Peter at the end of the book of John, the last lesson that he tells Peter is what? One day, you know, all your life, you dressed the way you wanted, you went wherever you wanted. That's your pride talking. But there will come a day when someone else will dress you and someone else will lead you and you will go places you never even wanted to go. That's what he says. Boldness and humility at the same time. When you take in other food we call that idolatry because we're pursuing this thing because we say this is what I need to get a sense of worth. This is why I work so hard because at the end of the day I want to know that I'm not just a bum from the ne- from the neighborhood. I want to know that I have worth. I want to know that I have value in life, significance and meaning in life. You're pursuing Zoe. You're pursuing meaning. You're pursuing purpose. God says, I'm providing manna. You know, he provided manna to the Israelites. And when they tried to do that, when they tried to store it up for themselves, it rotted. It decreased their Zoe. One of my favorite movies came out in 1984. And, uh, and uh, it was called Chariots of Fire, 1984. Oscar winner for Best Picture. It's about the Scotsman, a very true story about a Scottishman uh, named Eric Liddell. He was a Christian uh, and he won the gold medal. In the in the in the Olympics uh, in his era, and uh, his biggest adversary at the time was uh, a Jewish man uh, named Harold Abrams. Now, Eric Liddell was uh, he's the protagonist. Um, He he left behind tremendous amount of opportunity for wealth. Um, He left his country to go to China and eventually do missions for the rest of his life. Immediately after he won the gold medal, that's pretty much what he did. That's his legacy. But his adversary, the antagonist in the movie, it's an amazing movie, um, is Harold Abrams. Tremendous chip on his shoulder. He's arrogant and he's brash and he's proud. He has tremendous amount of skill and potential in his life. And uh, he, he knows that Eric Liddell is his uh, competition. His entire, throughout the whole movie, all he's doing is working to beat this man. And uh, he has to win. He has to win. He he explains to his friend. He has to win. He says, I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor. Four feet wide. He's a sprinter. Four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? He never knows where he stands. To the end, he never knows where he stands. He's always trying to just beat out the next guy. That's his that's his goal in life. Later he's talking to his friend, Aubrey, and he says, Aubrey, you're a brave, compassionate, kind, content man. That's your secret, contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. He's working for food that spoils. He never knows where he stands. He's always insecure. He always feels inadequate. In fact, there he is, the day of the race, the moments before the race, he's talking to his friend and he says, I've known the fear of losing. Now, I'm almost too afraid to win. I'm almost too afraid to win. In this passage, the Jews, in verse 28, the religious people, they ask Jesus, so what must we do then? Well, how did Jesus respond? Well, you got to serve. I want you to first be members of your synagogue and be good members. Is that what he says? Well, I want you to start by serving hard. I want you to listen to your rabbi. I want you to pray hard. I want you to be good. Is that what he says? Verse 29, his response, believe. That's what he says, believe. The point is you can't do anything. The religious, and they're religious, they're working. They just want to do. They just want to do so they can experience their Zoe. But that leads to idolatry, idolatry. And that leads to rotting and spoiling and maggots. We just went through that. What do you do? Verses 32 to 33. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says he never spoils. Unlike the manna which spoiled after one day, I will never spoil. I will eternally satisfy. Everything that you're looking for in life, I am the embodiment of that thing. In fact, that's the reason why you are looking for it. Because it's really me that you're looking for. There are people in this room today focused on their career and they've been working and slaving for approval. You're going to either get it from your colleagues, you're going to get it from your superiors, you're going to get it from your mentors. There are people in this room today, it may not be the approval of your superiors because you don't have many superiors, because you have your own work, something else that you're pursuing. And and as a result, it's going to come in the form of wealth. If you get wealth, that is your approval. If you get the promotion, that is your approval. That's your approval. If you get a bonus... Maybe it's just monetary altogether. If you get a bonus, that is your approval. If you get honor from your parents because your parents can brag about you and say, there is my daughter or there is my son. He went all the way to hear that. That is your approval. Other people are saying, I just want to get married. I just want love. Love. And so you rely on your looks and you're still working. You're still working to find the right outfit or the right place to find that person. You're still working. You're working hard. People say you're working it. That's what you're saying, right? You're doing whatever it takes and that's why you're working because love is your life. There are people who are investing in their 401ks every day. You're clicking. Every day you're doing financial modeling. There are people there, it may not be your money that you're investing in, right? It may be your children you're investing in. And you're not necessarily clicking on the website, but you're testing and you're experimenting. You're trying to figure out exactly what's going to be optimal for your child. You're doing whatever it takes. You're nurturing and you're controlling. In all these cases, what this text says is it's going to lead you to ruin. It's going to lead you to ruin. It's like eating poison apples. Looks good. Looks delicious. Remember Eve talking to Adam? But it looks good. That's what she says she says it's pleasing to the eye it must be good right it must satisfy right and what it led to was the rotting of the heart jesus says you don't do you receive it doesn't take any work to receive he says did you say what do we do he says believe if right now you're saying oh, i'm not really sure i'm trying to believe then you don't believe Because you're working to believe that you can't work to believe; you just believe. There are people here saying, "I don't want to believe," and yet this is so true. This is so true. Jesus is saying, "I am your bread of life. Believe. When you believe, verses thirty-five to forty, you get life. It's it's eternal. Jesus will raise you. That's your status. That's the end point." Those are your options. That's your potential. It's boundless. You will go places you never thought you could go. You will do things you never thought you could do. You know, bread at the presence of the temple. In the ancient times, they would have the temple. Bread at the presence of the temple. It was something that only priests could eat only something priests could take in because priests would ceremonially cleanse themselves. It was their way of saying, you have to be clean and that's why you cannot eat the bread. But you know, every month in this church, we get to observe communion. I wish we could do it more. Some churches do it every week. You know why? Because we get to eat of that bread every week. And what do you do? Do you go through a communion? Do you go to a, a, a ceremonial ritual to clean yourself before you come in? No, Jesus Christ says, if you believe, you are clean. You can take because you've already taken. You've already taken it in. Do you see that? Jesus Christ is inviting us to the feast. He says, before only priests could eat, now it's offered to everybody. This is an invitation. Anybody can eat. What's the prerequisite to this? It's a third implication. You have to say that you're hungry. You're not going to eat if you're full. If you've already filled yourself, you're not going to be hungry. The prerequisite, he says, you can't just come to me and say, you know, I'm just missing a few things. Like I got the entree, I got the appetizers. I'm just missing, you know, a little bit of dessert here. Can you kind of top it off for me? You can't come and say, Jesus, I'm just coming to you to improve my life. I just want a little bit of wisdom in my life. You can't do that. You can't come to him and say, you know, I have a lot to give. The feast is set. I did a lot of work to put this table together. I got a lot going on here. I'm doing a lot. I kind of need you to help me along here, work with me here because I'm pretty talented. God's love is for people who cannot love him on their own. God's love is for people who do not love him on their own. God's love is for people who are not lovable. God's love is for people who feel that they're insignificant, hungry. The only requirement is to say what? I look at myself and I'm dissatisfied with myself. I look at myself and I'm unhappy with myself. Bread in the Old Testament represented satisfaction. The joy of being satisfied, filled. You look at yourself, I'm not enough. I can't get there on my own. I don't even know what there is. I'm lost. I'm hungry. I'm in the wilderness. That's what the bread is for. Jesus says to his disciples, you know, feed them. I want you to feed them. They say, We can't. He uses this boy, insignificant to the world. To believe in Christ, to receive the gospel, to receive the seal, is to trust. You know that word of encouragement? Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3 I've loved you with an everlasting love. You know that promotion, that bonus, that raise the esteem from your colleagues, you're looking for an everlasting love. The ring, you're looking for an everlasting love. Jesus says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, the only one that will not end. No matter what you do, no matter where you are, I have loved you with an unfailing love, a hesed love in the Hebrew. It is a love that only God can have for his people because it is unfailing, unconditional Totally satisfying. That's the only thing that can heal your ego. That's the only thing that can end your pride. That's the only thing that can give you a sense of worth forever. <clears throat> you can end up like Harold Abrams in chariots of fire and, 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 and say, gosh, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Or when your self-worth where self-doubt, where your ego is healed, Eric Liddell, kind of in the beginning of the movie, his sister asks him, why do you run? And he says, I believe that God has made me for a purpose, but he's also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Humility and confidence at the same time equals joy. How do you get it? Last point, relatively quick, how do you get it? How do you apply this bread of life? How do you eat of it? Verse 41, the Jews, they're grumbling. They say, well, because they didn't believe. They're grumbling. I mean, what do we do? I don't get it. Because they're focused on where Jesus is from. They're focused on whose son he is. They're focused on his status. They're focused on his credibility to be able to speak to them. How do you come to Jesus to eat? Number one, verse 44, very simple answer. Jesus says, No one comes, no one comes unless the Father draws him. Because we're too focused on status, we're too focused on approval, we're too focused on getting wealthy, we're too focused on our our roles and our titles and our power and our talents. In other words, you cannot experience the power of God in your life until you see how powerless you really are, no matter who you are. Jesus says to his disciples, You know, you've demonstrated all these gifts just a little while ago and you just got back. Feed them. And they say, but we can't. And they're very indignant towards him. Our natural state is to just rely on our personal resources, what we've got in us. You know... uh Since the 80s, you have social psychology kind of filtered into Hollywood and all the movies are about look within, find what's in your heart, pursue the thing that's in your heart. But the thing is, the Bible never says that because the Bible says if you pursue what's in your heart, your heart is full of sin and brokenness and hurt and inability, insecurity, inadequacy. How can you be filled? How can you be filled? You have to recognize how powerless you really are. Verse 44, when he says, no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him. The word draw is not kind of like, hey, come along with me. Let me introduce you to my son. That's not the way the father works here because he knows our hearts. The word draw is a the, is the Greek word uh, that connotes drawing, dragging somebody into prison with a chain. Nobody wants to go to, no one says, hey, I'll go to prison. Nobody does that. Nobody just walks along with you to prison. You have to be dragged to prison. You fight against being dragged into prison. Jesus says, that's how you come to me. You have to recognize how much you've been fighting me all your life. And you have to recognize that as you've been fighting me, you've been getting weaker and weaker and weaker and more confused, more incoherent. Your soul is, co- uh, is disintegrating. It's equally natural to run away from Jesus, to not go to Jesus, not admit sin, not admit your weakness. You can't believe on, in Jesus on your own. And as a result, you can't experience the power of God on your own. And that's, that's important because I'll give you an example. Everybody believes that lying, for the most part, lying, telling a lie, for the most part is not a good thing. Everybody here would agree to lie generally is bad, right? We, we say that. Then why do we lie? Why is there such a thing as lying? If we all agree that it's bad, why does it exist? Why do we lie? There's not a single person in this room who can say, I've never told a lie in my life. Every one of us lies. You know why? Because you're covering over something that makes you feel inadequate. That's what we're doing. Every time you look for a job in this country, you are lying. Because on your resume, you are saying that you've done things that you have not done. Or you're kind of making it sound like it's more than what you actually did. Right? Every day we lie. Why do we lie? It's because we know that if we don't lie, well, let's talk about why we do lie. We lie because the consequence of not lying is bad for us sometimes. Let's admit that. Sometimes we lie because we look at the future consequence of lying and we say, I'd rather lie now than face the consequences of telling the truth. That means inevitably that there are people in this room who actually tell the truth and face bad consequences. Jesus doesn't say, if you tell the truth, it's all going to work out great. This isn't a 30-minute sitcom, right? You tell the truth, bad things are going to happen sometimes. There are bad consequences of telling the truth. So, when you tell the truth, there is a battle in your heart. Because, on one hand, you know the Spirit of God is telling you, you should, this, this is not good. Tell the truth. The consequences may be bad. I can't guarantee you that right now. Right? But God calls you to have integrity. Tell the truth. There's a battle. There's a battle. And you know that sometimes telling the truth is going to damage you or even destroy you in a sense. But for the soul that has tasted the bread of life, The Spirit of God compels you because you know that Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate consequence of telling the truth of who He is. The ultimate consequence. And that's why you know that telling the truth, you can forbear this and you can bear this. You can take this because it cannot ruin you. It feels like it can, but it cannot. That's the lie. The fact that you're saying this can ruin me, that's the lie because the ultimate consequence of telling the truth has already been suffered. Satan is called a liar, right? And so with humility and with boldness, you can and you have the power to tell the truth. But you're dragged against it. I mean, you fight against it. There's a battle in your soul against it. Jesus says, take me in, the bread of life. You are secure. There's nothing that can happen to you that will lose you out of my grip. And God will work through that. In that brokenness, in those consequences even, God will work in that. Do you trust that? Can you place your trust in that? I'm going to close this very quickly. Number two, put everything in his hands. Okay? One thing we kind of overlook in this passage because we're always so used to Jesus being such a compassionate and gracious God, and he is. Here's this boy, the only kid in the entire group that actually has food. And what does Jesus do? He takes it away from him. He takes it away from him. Everybody else is starving. Here's this boy who, he's like, you know, he's like kind of, he actually has something to eat, and he's poor. And Jesus says, they, they say, hey, this guy has food. And Jesus says, give me that, right? That's what happens. Obey the king. Sometimes it feels like things are being taken away from you. To take in the bread of life, sometimes it feels like you're losing the small, that you, the little that you have, you know, and you feel like it's being taken away from you, will you obey in those times? Can you trust during those times? Can you trust that he who has the power also has the wisdom, and therefore when it's taken away, it is wise? Can you trust that? And if you trust that, Will you trust, will you know, will you see over time God is doing 10,000 things for his glory, for your good through that weakness? Can you trust that? It's why you need somebody in your life right now. You actually need more than one person in your life. That's why we have the church. That's why we have community groups. You need somebody holding you accountable and saying, I hear what you're saying. And, you know, in a sensitive way, obviously. But they can say, He's taking away your lunch, and through it, perhaps, he will feed the multitude. Can you trust that? Can you put your life in some ways in someone else's hands and say, can you keep me accountable to that? Lastly, possibly the most important, probably the most important, in order for you to take it in, in order for it to have some, you know, when you take in bread, dynamic, and it's not like you just take it in and it just shoots out, right? That's not what happens. You take it in, what happens? Dynamic chemical processes take place in your body to absorb this bread. In the same way, when you take in Jesus Christ as the bread of life, a dynamic thing had to take place to consume him. And that's what fuels your body into activity. In a sense, what this child experienced, he lost the bread so that everybody else could be filled. It was a microcosm. Of what Christ will do with his own life. This little child for the moment got hungrier and everybody else got full, including him. You know, you notice the child doesn't say, why are you doing this? Why are you taking this away? I mean, he might have, but it wasn't recorded. Why? He was placing his story into a greater story, the story of Jesus Christ. As his life on the cross is being taken away from him, there you see him saying, my God, my God, why? Why are you doing this? And there was no answer. There was no explanation. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is being poured out on him. He's suffering the full punishment of our sin, the full extent of our sin. He's emptying himself. He gave up his true bread, his life, And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is right here on the cross at this moment, I am being broken, I am being consumed, I am dissatisfied with who I am. I've become sin, utterly joyless because God has departed from me. The wrath of God is on me when at one point I had the joy of God in my life. My source of worth, my father, my approval, my love, my seal has left me. And I am hungry. And I'm experiencing dissonance. And I'm experiencing the incoherence of not having God's presence. And I am experiencing the deterioration and the disintegration of God leaving me. Jesus was rejected. Why? So that we would have the seal of, proof of approval. Jesus experienced the wrath of the power of God. Why? So that we can have the abundance of his grace and power. Every time you look at the cross, what do you see? Ultimate potential went to death. Why? So that we, inadequate, insecure, could have potential. The bread of life was broken. Why? So that we could be healed. He was emptied so that we could be filled. He was consumed so that we could be made whole. He lost all of his potential, all of his options, all of his joy, so that we can have the joy and the satisfaction at the potential of being raised on the last day. On the cross, he's saying, I'm wasting away. My body is spoiling. I am rotting. I am being ripped apart for you. Do you believe that? That is your validation. When you look at the cross, that is your validation. Do you trust that? When you take in the gospel, there's wholeness. It leads to power. Power. It leads to activity. The Spirit of God is working in you, residing in you, empowering you, convicting you. There's a dynamic process that's taking place. And it gives you power, real power, power against sin, drags you away from your idolatries. Will you submit to that? Will you take it in? Give up the bread that you're clinging to right now and cling to Christ and your soul will be satisfied. Let's pray.